Well, church, it's, it's an honor uh, to be here, and, and I, I really mean that. And one of the reasons why I say that is a church that I come from in Roanoke, I don't think, humanly speaking, would be a church if it weren't for your investment in our little church over the last 15 years. In fact, for the first 10 years or so, no matter uh, any men's retreat, any marriage retreat, any youth retreat, anything like that that ever happened, we would come here, actually, uh, entirely as a church, or we would meet you in Williamsburg, you would arrange it, you would orchestrate it, um, you would administrate it, you bring in teachers, and we would just soak it all up. So thank you. Thank you for your investment uh, in our church. Um, it's humbly to be here. Also, uh, it's an honor to be here just for just the mere camaraderie of our sister churches. Uh, it's so good to know that you're not alone. Uh, and that there are other churches of like-mindedness with you that are walking through uh, different issues uh, throughout life, uh, but doing it together. And it's just such a pleasure uh, to, to be here, to know Josh and, and Chris and Matthew. And um, I, I feel a part of this church uh, in many ways, uh, though I've never been a member here. Well, this morning I want to talk to you about something near to my heart, and really this is a message for me, uh, and I hope that by the providence of God, uh, I trust that He will use it to perhaps uh, minister to a number of you. Last month, uh, on a routine visit, uh, my wife and I found out that my wife has colon rectal cancer. We've since been to numerous doctors and specialists, had all kinds of MRIs and CT scans, and basically the recommendation is to include five and a half weeks of chemo and radiation, uh, therefore followed by surgery, followed by a colostomy, followed by four and a half more months of intensive chemo, followed by a second surgery, followed by exams to see where we are with the realization that the likelihood and probability that the cancer will return after this long treatment is high. I, I don't like this path. know my wife since we've been 16 years old. I don't want it for my wife. I didn't want it for her mom who died of cancer at the same age my wife is now. I don't want it for my seven children ages 23 to 6. I don't want it for myself. And as a Christian, I know that God is sovereign. And I know that there are no accidents and I know that this is the path that he's carved out for me and my family at this time. And I know that he wants me to trust him and walk through this time, even though we don't know the outcome. But I want to ask you a question as I'm asking myself this morning. What do you do if you know what God wants you to do? But if you're honest with yourself, you don't want to do what you know what God wants you to do. 
If you've ever faced a dilemma like that, you're not alone. You're in good company. Moses didn't want to go to Egypt. In fact, he said to God, send someone else. Jeremiah didn't want to take a contrary position to all the priests, the officials, the nobles, and the kings of the land. Joseph certainly didn't want to be in a dungeon. Fairly certain Abraham didn't want to climb up Mount Moriah knowing that he was to sacrifice his son. Hezekiah, the king, most likely didn't like the situation or the path that God put before him as hundreds of thousands of Assyrians besieged and surrounded his city, promising to murder everyone if they didn't surrender. All of these were called to trust and follow, and very likely, very likely they didn't want to. Maybe your path this morning is laden with things that you don't want to do either, though you know God's calling you to do them. Maybe it's giving forgiveness to someone who doesn't deserve it. Maybe it's being patient, though you're single. Maybe it's humbling yourself and getting a menial job as you wait for something better. Maybe it's continuing to pray for healing of that chronic and debilitating illness. Maybe it's believing God for some financial provision, although it always seems that you're needy. Maybe it is to trust even when you don't understand. What is it that you know that you know God wants you to do, but perhaps you don't want to do it? If you can identify with these people and perhaps with my situation, then you'll be able to identify with the man that I want to talk about today. His name is Jonah, and I call him Jonah, the man who didn't want to. He was a prophet, a man appointed by God to speak the words of God to the people, but Jonah did not want to do what God had called him to do, and God had commanded this man, Jonah, this prophet, to go to the wicked enemy country of Assyria and preach in the capital city of Nineveh and preach the message that God had laid upon his heart. But every Israelite despised all the Ninevites and everything they stood for. They were pagan. They were a wicked military nation bent on perverse religion and they had a bloodthirst for power and world dominion. And so when Jonah was given this command by God, instead of following God and going to Nineveh, Jonah instead went the total opposite direction and went to Tarshish. Jonah tried to run away from the presence of God and the path that God had laid out for his life. Jonah did not want to do what God had called him to do. I don't want to either. I wish I could say today I'm at a place where I just say... God, all glory be to your name, and I know this is your path for me and my family, and I want to do it with all my heart. I'm not there yet. I'm still in process, and maybe you are today as well. Maybe some of you have already faced this dilemma, and others likely will encounter this dilemma in the very near future, but 
sooner or later, you're going to find yourself, perhaps even more times than once, wrestling with the truth, if you're honest with your own heart, of not wanting to do what you know God wants you to do. We usually want to follow God's way when it conforms to our understanding, our desire. But listen, God knows this. And because we are not like God, God sent His Son to become like us in order that we might be transformed to become like Him. Listen, God's path is the best path, even if it's narrow, even if it's lonely, even if it's dark, even if it's littered with stones and heartache. He wants you to know that you can trust Him even when you don't want to. That's why this story today about this man named Jonah brings hope. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are all good and all wise and all powerful. And we look at Jesus and are just amazed at the way he lived his life. And we want to live our lives like our Savior But Lord, we're weak, and we need your help. We need your intervention, and I pray that you would intervene today. Help me, O Lord. Help my brothers and sisters to hear from you through this man, Jonah. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. For those of you taking notes, I want to talk about four things today. The story of Jonah, the experience of Jonah, the lessons of Jonah, then the application of of Jonah. First, the story of Jonah. Oftentimes when you read a story, oftentimes we get mixed up with the details. And what I mean by that, it's kind of like the story of Pinocchio, where you know the story of Pinocchio and you realize that, okay, that's about this puppet that comes to life and he um, befriends this old lonely man and uh, then he ends up being swallowed by a whale. But, but those are the details. That's not what the author is trying to convey. The author's trying to convey the perils of lying and the disastrous results of hanging around the, the wrong company. And what he does is he puts it in the form of a story to teach you important truths. And that's when you think about Jonah, that's how you have to think about these four chapters of this wonderful book. It is a story about a man who gets swallowed by a great fish. But more importantly, more importantly, unlike other prophetic books, the the main message of Jonah is not the message that he preaches to Nineveh. The main point of Jonah is the character that's revealed in his heart. You see, the main point of this entire book is this. Jonah is a picture of Israel. Israel... Jonah, the representative of Israel, the spiritual leader of Israel. Israel's not concerned for the salvation of other nations. And God is. And God wants to convey his heart through the prophet Jonah, through these words, his heart for other nations, for other people. You know the facts of the story. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah instead, going to Nineveh, goes down to Joppa, then boards a ship to go to Tarshish. 
And as he's on the water, God throws a storm upon the water. Jonah is sleeping in the bow of the ship. There the sailors panic over this hurricane that they've encountered. They come to Jonah and say, what is going on? What have you done? Jonah says, listen, I have been running from God. Throw me overboard, and if you do, the sea will certainly come. So they do. Jonah's thrown overboard, sinks down. God appoints this great fish. He comes, swallows Jonah for three days. Jonah's in the belly of this great fish. Then Jonah repents. The whale or the fish, great fish, whatever kind it is, spits him out. God repeats his command, uh, says, go to Nineveh. Jonah this time reluctantly goes to Nineveh, preaches the message And the great revival happens in Nineveh. Unexpectedly, 120,000 people respond to Jonah's simple message. This is his message. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's his sermon. And 120,000 people respond much to Jonah's chagrin. That's the story. But the main point here is God's concerned. Jonah's not. In fact, there's a contrast that's going on here between Jonah and the Ninevites, between Jonah and these pagan sailors that he boards the ship upon. Jonah says to the sailors, he says, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, it will quiet down for you, because I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. But verse 13 says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. These people that didn't know God, these people who had no understanding of of the God of Israel, the God of grace and mercy, these people, when they're threatened with their life, and Jonah says, throw me overboard, they refuse righteously to throw him overboard. They say, they they instead decide, no, we're going to row hard, we're going to throw away all the cargo, we're going to do everything we can. We don't want to do that evil thing, even though our lives are at stake, we don't want to throw you overboard. And finally, Jonah insists, and they say to the Lord, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us his innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as is pleased. And here you have this contrast of these sailors, these sailors who don't know God, but they're acting righteously, and Jonah, who does know God, and yet he would rather die then tell them the message that God had for them. When Jonah goes to Nineveh, you have these Ninevites, these warring people. If you want to think, what were the Ninevites like? Probably the best example would be those who belonged to ISIS, for that was the reputation. They were a notorious people, famous for their torture, famous for their murderous acts, And yet, in chapter 3, verse 5, when Jonah preaches that simple message, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The entire nation all responded to God the very first time they heard his word. Yet Jonah, in contrast, has been told by God to go to Nineveh instead He totally disobeys. Here the Ninevites respond, and yet Jonah, when he sees the response, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, speaking of the 120,000 people there in that mighty city, 
God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it, chapter 4, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. That's the story of Jonah. Can you see his heart? He's a man with a hardened heart. He could care less about the sailors, about the Ninevites. They're a people not like us. They're a people that are wicked. They're a people that don't deserve the mercy of God like us, us Israelites. That's the story of Jonah. But you see, God's care. He cares. He cares about those lost souls. He cares about you. And listen, he cares about Jonah. That's the story of Jonah. Let's look at the experience of Jonah. You see, because Jonah's experience is the common experience. His experience is our experience. His feelings not only mirror Israel's feelings, but his feelings also mirror our feelings. We want to do what we want to do, much like Adam and Eve in the beginning or a young toddler in the, in the grocery store there wanting that piece of candy when mommy says no. And even as Christians, even as Christians, there's a war inside our heart where we want to do what's right, but we just can't find the gumption to be able to do what's right or to feel what's right. We want to do what God wants us to do, but somehow, someway, in our own sinful hearts, we just don't want to. Paul says it this way, For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You see, we want to do what we know God wants, but often, when we're honest, the truth is, we're just like Jonah. We don't want to. And we have common excuses for resisting God's will. Excuses like, it's too hard. In Jonah chapter 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amiti, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Listen, this was hard. To go to a city like that and risk your life and share that message was a hard thing God was asking him to do. And being a prophet was a hard thing to do. I know today sometimes you see prophecy conferences and all kinds of things around the country and it just seems to be glamorous. But to be a prophet in biblical times wasn't very glamorous. Sometimes it meant that you laid on your side for 18 months cooking your food over cow dung like Ezekiel. Or sometimes like Jeremiah to be in a clay jar up to your neck in mud in prison. Or like Isaiah hiding in a hollow log only to be sawn in two by the wicked king Manasseh. It was hard to be a prophet. And sometimes, listen, sometimes it's hard to be a Christian too. Asking for forgiveness first. Or asking for forgiveness when you know the person who you're asking it is not going to reciprocate. Maybe it's an untimely death or a church split or some, someone you respect doing something that's so disappointing. It's hard to follow God. It's hard sometimes to do what God calls you and I to do.
Sometimes we can feel like Jonah, perhaps, and say this road or path that God's placed before me is too much for me. I understand that. Do you? You ever had that feeling? Those thoughts? Or how about Jonah perhaps had this thought, you know what, I, I don't want to work on character. I'm tired of working on character, God, even, it's f- even if it's for my own good. Jonah prays to the Lord, and he says this in chapter 4. He says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? He said, that's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, God, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And then verse 4, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? I can just imagine Jonah in that moment. And later, the second time, God says the same thing. Jonah says, yes, I do good to be angry. Angry enough to die. Sometimes through difficult situations, we don't want God to build our character. But you see, that's what being a Christian is all about. It's more than that, and God's doing so much more than just building your character. But listen, that's God's main intention in your life and my life, right? Not just to save you, but to transform you into his likeness, to make you like him. And oftentimes, trials in those roads that are the roads that we don't want to travel down, oftentimes God uses those paths Not just to change you, because they will, but to make you like him. To transform you, to be what you want to be more than anything else in the world. You want to be like Jesus. And that's what God's after. That's what he's doing. Jonah says, I would rather die than have to obey and consequently want good for for others. But God says, listen, Jonah, I, I will die. I will send my son who will die for you in order that you might become like me. It gets really ugly in Jonah's life. When he says, Lord, is not this what I said when I left my country? Why I made haste to flee from Tarshish? That you're gracious God, merciful. I knew you would be merciful and kind to these people that don't believe it. That's why I didn't want to go. It's not because I didn't want to obey. It's because I did not want you to be kind and gracious to people who don't deserve it. But Jonah, that's the essence of the gospel. Grace for those who don't deserve it. Go. Go, Jonah. Go, and along the way, you'll find me. Go, and along the way, I'm going to transform you into my likeness. Listen, God's not mean, giving us difficult things to do. He's kind and gracious, transforming us into that which we long to be. God wouldn't allow this to go unchecked. He loves Jonah too much. 
And he loves you too much too. Because we're not like God, God sent his son to become like us in order that we might be transformed to be like him. Perhaps Jonah is thinking, why do I have to disadvantage myself to advantage others? Why does why do things have to be so hard for me? I call it the, the Peter syndrome. When when Peter looks, when Jesus tells Peter how he's gonna die, the death he's gonna die, that he's gonna die, the death of crucifixion, and Peter looks at John and it seems like everything comes easy to John. He's got the plush life. Everything Jesus seems to to love on him, and it just seems like everything goes well for him. And and for Peter, he keeps putting his foot in his mouth, things go wrong, and Peter just looks at him, what about him, Lord? How's he going to die? And then Jesus says this. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Listen, Peter, my path for you is good too. And it's been carved and cut by my gracious right hand. And I'll uphold you. And I'll give you strength. And I am going to fulfill your heart with desires that you could never even imagine. Listen, here's something, Christian, you have to know and you have to convince yourself of. Because Satan will try his best to say the contrary. Wanting what God wants is always wanting what's best. Wanting what God wants is always superior to your grandest dream. One of the things I'm so grateful for. When you're faced with something you don't want to do. Is that we have a savior that was faced with the very same thing. You remember the story in the garden. You remember as Jesus was in agony. And Luke records it. He says he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Hear what he's saying? If you are willing, take this cup from me. Father, I don't want to do this this way. And if you're willing, remove it from me. That's how I feel. That's how I feel. I just want to put the covers over my head. And everything work out right. I don't want to have to have those talks with my young kids. I don't want to envision what life might be like without my wife. I don't want to go to these exams and see my wife in all these terrible compromising positions before dozens of men. I don't like it. Jesus didn't either. Look what he says. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But here's here's the turn. He's tempted just like I am. He's tempted just like you are. But he doesn't sin. Look what he says. Nevertheless, not my will, 
but yours be done. That's God's desire for you and for me in that path that you don't want to. For us to come to that place where we say, God, I don't like it, but I love you. And I know you're good, and I know you're wise, and I know you're strong, and I know your way's best. Not my will be done. Please, not my will be done. <laughs> if you've looked at your life and th thought about times where you really wanted this, as you get older, you realize that you don't want yourself to be in charge. If you guys raise your hand if you've realized that truth so far. That's not many. Okay, there should be more hands than that. Okay? I don't want to be in charge of my life, much less the universe. When I look at Jesus, though, salvation was wrought through suffering. Eternal life was wrought through death. Glories and riches of heavenly bliss were wrought through crucifixion. We can trust him, right? The story of Jonah, the experience of Jonah. Let's look quickly at the lessons of Jonah. Listen, here's one of the lessons. It's such a comfort when I don't want to. God will go to extreme measures to save you from yourself. Chapter 1, verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Listen. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus calms the hurricane. In the book of Jonah... God causes it. Why? Because he's intervening. He's saving Jonah from himself. Jonah's thrown over the sea, or thrown over uh, the boat, sinks down. God goes to extreme measures to send that great fish. To, the timing is precise in this precise location as Jonah is just sinking down for this great fish to swallow him at just the right time. But it's a wonderful example of the willingness of God to go to extreme measures to save you from yourself when you don't want to do what God wants you to do. In essence, you don't want to become like Christ. And God says, no, my child. You will become like Christ because I am more powerful than even your will. I am stronger than even your rebellion and I will go to extreme measures, child. If you ever doubt that, look to the cross. Those are the measures I'm willing to go through to save you from yourself. God's capable of doing far greater than you can imagine is another lesson we learned. One sermon, 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. That's all that's recorded for us. Maybe there were a few other words, but isn't it amazing to think those few words, one sermon, Jonah 3.6 says, The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and ashes. Listen, never underestimate the importance of obedience to God's call for you because God's capable of doing far greater than you can ever imagine. Can you imagine the nation of ISIS, if you will, 120,000 strong, but the king of the nation willing to humble himself and then to declare a fast to the entire nation that we are all going to do this from the businessman to the warrior to the slave. We are each going to call out to this God of Jonah and beg him for mercy. 
Another lesson is God often exposes serious prejudices. Charlottesville's was ugly. But so is Jonah. So is Jonah. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it, verse 1 of chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. It didn't just displease him. It displeased him exceedingly. He was angry that people got saved. That is about as ugly as it gets. But listen, the lesson of Jonah is that God's exposing not just Jonah, he's exposing the heart of all of Israel because that's how they felt too. You know, sometimes, sometimes God exposes, exposes that ugliness in our heart as well. You don't think that someone deserves your forgiveness or your care or your prayers. But God wants to transform you. Another lesson is that God is always doing something bigger than your situation. What a glorious lesson that Jonah learned and that we learned from this book. Verse 11, here's the heart of God. The heart of Jonah is there in chapter 1 where Jonah is sleeping while the sailors are perishing in the storm that he caused. The heart of God is here in verse 11 of chapter 4 when God's speaking to Jonah after he has had mercy upon them. God says to Jonah, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 who don't know their right from their left? That's the heart of God. But listen, here's the point. Jonah going to Nineveh, God interwove their lives in such a way that it would affect the lives of 120,000 people. Listen, I know sometimes when you are called to do something you don't want to do, it feels lonely and dark and you're all alone. But hear me, the way you live your life impacts other people. It's connected God is using you and your circumstance to bring himself glory. God was using Jonah to save 120,000 people. Doesn't it seem silly not to do what God wants him to do? He's a prophet, right? Wouldn't that bring his heart great joy to see a, the biggest revival, perhaps, in all the Bible, and that he would be the impetus for it? Wouldn't that, doesn't that make sense that Jonah would want to do that? But you see, he didn't want to do that, but God knew. God knew as he obeyed, as he trusted, as he followed, that that was God's plan. Listen, you'll never know how God intends to use you as you trust him even when you don't want to. Let's look quickly. We looked at the story of Jonah, the experience of Jonah, some lessons of Jonah. Let's look quickly at the application of Jonah. What should I do if I don't want to do something I know God wants me to do? The first thing is this, to acknowledge it. 
just be honest. God, I don't want to do what you want me to do. I wish I was a better Christian. I wish my heart was more sanctified, that I could say, bring hell or high water. I just want to follow you. I don't care. Acknowledge it. But don't stop there. Pray the prayer of the man who prayed this to Jesus when he had trouble believing, when he had trouble trusting, when he had trouble following. You remember the story where his son, he brought his son to the, the disciples to cast out this demon from his son, and the disciples could not do it. And so he brings him to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And Jesus says, if I can in other words, do you know who I am? I'm God you're talking to. All things are possible for him who believes. But I love this man's response. And it should be an application for us. It should be our response, our first response. If we are struggling to do what God, we know that God wants us to do. He said this, then the father of the child cry out, I believe. Help my unbelief. Acknowledge it and pray and ask God, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to trust. Second, you can remind yourself of the big five, I call them. Listen, you need to be relentless here because Satan's certainly going to be relentless towards you. He's going to tell you that God's not good. This path is not right. God's not wise. You know better. Go to Tarshish. He's certainly going to say that to you, and he's certainly saying that to me. And we need to be relentless as well. We need to realize and recognize and hold firm to these truths that we've been taught through God's word, that he is all good. He is all wise. He is all perfect. He is all sovereign. Praise the Lord will give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We need to remember that. We need to remember times in our lives that God has shown his goodness to us. For me, when I'm in those situations and I'm tempted to think God's not been good to me, I just think back to when I was 18 when I had an abortion. And I think how I took a life, murdered some child because of my own selfishness and wanting to go off and play in my baseball career. And now I have seven beautiful, healthy children. When I think of that, I'm reminded, no, what kind of God would be so gracious as this God for someone so undeserving to have children, much less seven? He is good, Bruce. That's your God. Remember that and hold on to that. He is all wise. Joseph certainly didn't want to be in that dungeon, sold into slavery for 17 years. But listen, God had strategically placed Joseph close to Pharaoh so that 17 years later, when it came time to interpret that dream, Joseph was immediately called, immediately shared before Pharaoh, and immediately put in place there in the country of Egypt, and there became second in command because of those 17 years, and there saved the nation of Israel, 70 strong, and there Joseph saved the nation, but he also saved the promise of the Christ who was going to come. The famine would not destroy them. God placed Joseph in just the right, wisest place of all, and it was in the dungeon in order that salvation could come 
not just to the Jews, but to you and me through Jesus Christ. That was all the wisdom of God. And certainly during that time, Joseph couldn't see it. Either could Jonah. For it was not just 120,000, but thousands upon thousands. He's all wise. He's all perfect. Could have been another way. But his ways are perfect. He's the rock. His works are perfect. He's all sovereign. He loves you at all times. You need to tell yourself and remind yourself of these truths. Third and quickly, you need to stay in the moment in those times. You can't get ahead of God. You've got to take one day at a time. You've got to be like the Israelites who are given their manna, and you've got to go and gather it for the day that God has given it for you. Yes, there is future grace. But listen, when you're worrying about the future, worrying about the outcome, worrying about how someone's going to respond, whatever it is that's causing you not to want to do something, you have to realize this truth. There is future grace, but God doesn't give you future grace in the present. He gives you present grace in the present. And when you go out front, you go out without God. And you go on your own. You've got to stay close to God. You have to stay in the moment. You have to be like young Corey Timboom, who when her mother was going to pass away and she said, oh, daddy, I don't know how I'm ever going to deal with mommy passing away. I don't know how I'm ever going to make it. And her father wisely said, Corey, when we go on the train, when do I give you your ticket? And she says, daddy, you always give me my ticket right before I step on the train. And he said, yes, my daughter, and God will give you grace at the moment you need it. That's who our God is. I know your path might be hard. And I know it might be difficult. But listen, we're in this together. We're not alone. God has perhaps asked you to walk a path that's not easy. God perhaps has asked you to face things that you don't want to face and perhaps do things that you don't want to do. But remember this, as with Jonah, as you take that step of faith, as you trust God, he's not just pushing you out there on your own. He's holding your hand. And he's going before you and behind you. And he's upholding you. And he's got blessings and glory that you will never, ever understand until you see him eye to eye, face to face in heaven. And the story of Jonah and the salvation of those 120,000 is meant, is meant to encourage us. It's meant to encourage us that look what happens when we do what God calls us to do. It's glorious, beyond our imagination. And it's not just so with Jonah, but it's also so with you and with me. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who some perhaps are here today and maybe they're like me, they're still in process. God, I pray that you would give them grace, that you would give them hope, that you would show them your glorious desire, that you would, that you would grant them newfound faith and mercy to walk this road that you 
have placed before them. And I pray when the, the devil assaults them uh, with, with words and accusations that, that you're not good, that you're not wise, that you've forgotten them, that, that, that you somehow don't want what's best for them. Lord, I pray that you would remind them of the story of Jonah and remind them of your gracious mercy. I pray that you would remind them of the cross. You remind them of their Savior who doesn't just stay in the garden, but now lives inside of each and every one who's called upon the name of Jesus. And he promises never to leave them and never forsake them. In Jesus' name.